Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good morning, Ned. Ciao, Davide. Where? It's a regional accent, a regional way of saying Davide. Oh, was it? Oh, okay. Uh, where art thou? <laughs> Pretty good. I'm on the outskirts of Verona, in the region of Veneto, in the northwest of Italy. It's been 223 years since the city fell into Austrian hands, 216 years since it was handed over to Napoleon, and 207 years since it was returned again to Austria. It's mild and overcast this Friday morning. And as we head to the weekend, there are total road closures in force on the Viale di Nazione, the Via Copernico, and the Via Esperanto, as the city hosts the only interesting bit of stage 13 of the Giro d'Italia. Avoid rabid dogs. It's 6.34, and here's Spando Ballet and Muscle Bound. Never Strays Farfalle Giro Special Morning Show, also known as the Morning Butterfly, is brought to you by Chapter 3 and the Roadbook. Listen, Chapter 3 was made, founded by you, David Miller, in 2015, with the vision of creating cycling clothing that would you could wear as a retired racer. Now for 2021, Chapter 3 have made cycling kits to meet you wherever your ride takes you. They're calling it Most Days. It launches in only a couple of weeks' time. So make sure you sign up via the link in the show notes to get access before anyone else does. And that explains why you're so busy with meetings all the time, David. It is, Ned, as you tend to be towards the uh, Volta Espana time, putting together the roadbook. In 2018, Ned and a team of dedicated enthusiasts delivered the inaugural edition of the roadbook Cycling Almanac, an annual publication supplying day, essays, and anecdotes from the racing calendar. The Roadbook 2020 and past editions have become the definitive companion of any fan of the sport. To be the first to hear about limited pre-order runs for future products and exclusive promotions, sign up via the link in the show notes. Um, what's going on, Ned? Industrial estates, outskirts of the two... Ge- well, we are today the two gentlemen of Verona, aren't we? Oh, God. Away? Yes, you introduced us to me last night. So it's... um. Mm, and I thought it was, yeah. and I actually, I'm, I'm so such a philistine um, that mm. I actually said it's like shit Shakespeare. Yeah, you got confused, didn't you? Because it you is a bit confused. Because it is shit Shakespeare. It turns out it's one of his early plays. Well, that's a big call. I mean, we're going in quite early. It is literally sort of half past six in the morning, and uh, you've decided to rubbish uh, Shakespeare, which is. That's okay, but you, you might. I might ask you later on the podcast to kind of stand up your position with a bit of evidence. We, we could, I suppose, we could look, perhaps, couldn't we, at the plot uh, and the structure of the two gentlemen of Verona later? Yeah, I think we should later, just to kind of. Um, I, and you know, I'm only saying and making such a strong critical statement regards the greatest ever writer in English language, and arguably 
any human language um, because it's comparative. <laughs> any human language. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. The dogs have written brilliant um, tragic comedies. Well, that's true. You never but, know. Yep. And um, okay. Well, I'm just saying. I'd like to think bigger than just humans. Um, but yeah, it's it's pretty bad. And I actually lay in bed last night reading. Not the actual play, uh, but Wikipedia, of course, <laughs> which maybe isn't the fairest way to judge judge his work. But um, we can dig into that maybe later. I've seen the two gentlemen of Rona. Oh my it was an god! Evening, it was an evening. I well, I was going to say it was an evening I won't forget. But up until just now, seconds ago, I had forgotten it, and now I've remembered that I've seen the two gentlemen of Rona. <laughs> I think I have anyway, but there's a few. Anyway, look, we'll come on. We'll, we'll come on to that if we've got time, which is something that's tantalising for the podcast listeners. They'll be thinking, "Oh, I really hope they have got time at the end to discuss the two gentlemen." I hope they don't. I hope they don't fill this podcast with analysis of Andrea Vendrami's win on stage twelve of the Giro d'Italia. Which, what did you think of it as you were watching it? Um. Uh, you know what? I had it on TV in the background in another room. Um, and in another I, room because I kept dipping in and out. Um, because I had Nick here who I work with, and so we were working, and and then we were in my office and we were out. And actually, I was quite underwhelmed by it because I, I, I'd go in and there'd be this break when I was like, Ugh. and then I kept waiting for things to happen but behind, and so eventually I just let it go and forgot. I actually forgot. A bit like the the two gentlemen of Verona, I forgot it was actually happening, and uh, so there was only afterwards I, I saw it. So I don't really know, and I haven't even read any reports yet. I'm afraid. So this is why this morning show is so uh, useful for me, actually, and I hope certain listeners as well who have the same issues I have with regards watching the bike race. David Miller, the unsighted pundit. It's a genre. I mean, it's a yeah, yeah it's, it's a niche genre. I've yeah. I've been able to do it actually in situ as well at times. As you have, a, you have an amazing capacity for it. Actually, yeah, it's, um, yeah. head in the table it, commentating. Uh, that's happened. Yeah, that's true. I've done a whole break before. You got uh, you actually got angry. That's the first time I maybe one of the few times, only times I've seen you angry. You just got frustrated because I was commentating and doing blind commentary with my forehead resting on the table. And actually, as I was talking about Bade, the camera fell on Bade and started just like holding a shot on him, which I had no idea about while I was talking about Bade. Oh, that Bardet. was amazing. Wasn't it? That was amazing. Mm. That that really was incredible. It was like you were thinking the race into existence. Oh, brilliant. Uh, didn't see much of Bardet. Didn't see much of Bardet yesterday. And curiously, your description of how you <clears throat> started off semi-interested into the, uh, yesterday's stage and then kind of just let it go mm. was actually is actually un- again uncannily accurate, David. You <laughs> serendipitously you somehow struck a chord with what actually happened on the on the road because. There was actually a really good race. 65 kilometers it took. And we saw yesterday's lumpy parkour, didn't we? Had a look at that. Yeah, it was really, it looked like, because we were saying really previously before in what, 11.5, um, the 11.5 show, that it looked like it was going to be a savage day. But you know what does sometimes happen is when you've had a day like the previous day, which was just properly brutal. Sorry if you can hear Lego in the background. That's, um, probably. Yeah. Okay. I love that sound. He's got a massive, it sounds like he's got a massive bucket of Lego and he's just swirling around, like mixing a great big thing of dough, right? Yeah. Just trying to find, he's probably trying to find, I always used to find it very hard to find, you'd, you'd be looking for like 
a three dot um, transparent section because oh, he wants to make a window yeah. on the side of a wall. They were always very, very uh, a premium on those. That, weren't that's they? tricky, always. yeah. But you need fresh eyes occasionally, so I, I tend to get a five, ten yeah. minute call, fresh eyes coming in. Um, uh, so, yeah, sometimes after a really brutally savage day, the next day, the Peloton, for obvious reasons, is quite tired, not just physically, but mm. um, mentally. And there's almost this kind of truce effect. And I think that perhaps wasn't actually the case yesterday in the sense that it took 65 Ks to go. That means a lot of people were absolutely convinced the brake would go. So, And I guess they also knew once the elastic snaps and the brake went, the Peloton would be too tired to really hunt it down. And ironically, it kind of tends to happen then that once you get past 45 minutes of racing, because often you do it in time or distance, and it's still not gone, a lot of people will go, oh, no. Or there'll be people who weren't thinking about going in the break will start trying to get in the break because they know that when it does break after 45 minutes, it's not going to come back. And that clearly seems to be what happened yesterday. Yes, I think I think that's exactly what happened, save for a curious kind of dynamic at the front of the bunch. Once the break went and it took well, it took much longer than forty five minutes, it was sixty five kilometers mm. of racing. So that's like a two, before it two, went. So, two hours. Well an certainly an hour and a half. So it was hilly, yeah, wasn't it? hour and a half. Yeah. Hour and a half of, of full on racing. Um and then so and then but then in your you know, with Puccio and Ghana got pretty much straight on the front, let it go out to five minutes. There were 16 riders up the road. Um, the best of them was on GC was George Bennett at just over 20 minutes. But they pegged it at five minutes and they pegged it at five minutes for three quarters of an hour. So that's about when Something I started like watching. That. I started watching and I was like, whoa, the Indians are riding hard. Yeah. I was like, they're riding yes. really hard. Yeah. And, it was like, and it was wet weather as well. And I thought, oh, this is going to be. So that's when I was kind of relatively curious about dipping back in again. But then it didn't continue like but that, then it did changed. it? But it changed. No, it changed in a curious way. You suddenly saw in a helicopter shot, you saw uh, uh, Egan Bernal and the, the pink jersey pulling off to the side of the road with Castroviejo, with Martinez, with Navarez, and with Moscon. Um, and they all pulled off for a very demonstrative pee by the side of the road, leaving only Puccio and Ganna up there, who just, you know, because... Because the leader had, had, had pulled over for a pee, they just kind of uh, pulled off, you know, they scrubbed off half the speed and the peloton just had, suddenly went flat at the front. Um, and that took a few minutes to resolve itself. And then, you know, uh, one by one, they all came back to the front. And that uh, that meant that it went from five minutes out to seven and a half minutes. And from that moment onwards, they just, it was like that was, it was like they changed their minds. Because prior to that, they'd be, you honestly, like you say, it was, it looked as if they were going to bring it back for a GC race. And then I don't know whether the P itself actually determined the new tactic or whether the P stop was part of the new tactic, you know. Yeah. Um, but they changed their minds, it looked like. I guess sometimes it, they wait to see if any other teams are interested. Um, but it, it's kind of a test. And, they could have set off the day thinking we, we could really kind of take the Giro, take complete control of the Giro today if we want to. Um, but I guess maybe halfway through they thought, you know what, we don't need to do this. This is going to be too, this is going to take too much out of our team with with still a lot of racing ahead. So that, that decision can then just be made on the road, which definitely seems to have been quite a, and, and again, that decision could just come from Egan Bernal, who then just calls at one moment and says, actually, you know what guys, let's not do this today. And it just pulls off. So that's that seems to be the sort of thing that's happened. And that's when the whole peloton just go, oh, oh, thank oh. you. And uh, it just all <coughs> calms down. And that's that's often what you wait for in the break is you kind of piling that pressure on for as long as you can. 
in the hope that you do just crack mentally the, the chase behind. Uh, and that's, that's what they did. And then, then there's this almost sort of calming, not only in the, the peloton, but in the breakaway ahead as well. They're like, okay, we did it. And now we can stop worrying about what's behind us and start thinking about what's ahead. Well, what was ahead of them was uh, 16 riders in the breakaway. Um, it got whittled down, obviously. The final climb was uh, quite long, and um, but really strange. It had kind of a descent in it, and it had flat, flat sections at the beginning and at the end. But the, it had this middle section of three kilometres that was seriously kind of over 10%. Quite sustained, actually. Three kilometres at 10%. So that was the obstacle in the final climb. And... To get over that, you only had 9.4 kilometers left over the top of that climb. And brilliantly, the climb was called, if you translate it into English, the Paso del uh, Carnaio, the Pass, uh, the pass of Carnage. Um, and it produced an attack by... There were two riders from AG2R Citroën in the break. One was the um, King of the Mountains, Geoffrey Bouchard, and one was the Italian... I, I mean... I have to say, I kind of think of him as a sprinter because he's got regular top 10 placings in World Tour bunch sprints, like at Tirreno Adriatico on stages won by Mathieu van der Poel, um, like at uh, the UAE Tour. I mean, he's incredibly fast and it's not just a ride. He's not just a rider who ends up accidentally placing high in bunch sprints. He is a sprinter, effectively. <laughs> but anyway, he attacked on this climb and he, he ripped the race apart and he got just before this steep section I've outlined, he got himself a 10 second gap on the road. And he clearly set, set himself this target of if I turn myself inside out for the next three kilometers and I hold that even if I'm caught towards the end of this three kilometer section, but not past, I can sit on the wheels and whichever group of climbers comes up to me, I can pump them in the sprint. Hmm. So it, his stage, the investment in his stage win was all about those three kilometers. It was really, really impressive tactics. Mm. And that's exact, and, and not just tactics, it was really impressive riding. I mean, they must have done, a Vendrami actually comes from Veneto, and I wonder, you know, which is actually 200, 300 kilometers south of, north of where we were yesterday. But I wonder whether he's done his reconnaissance on that particular climb, because it was quite an anomalous climb. It was quite an individual climb. And he knew it better than anyone else, exactly what to do. And and that's kind of exactly how it played out. He was caught going over the top of the climb by three pure climbers, Chris Hamilton of DSM, Gianluca Brambilla of Trek Segafredo, and George Bennett. And from that moment on, he just didn't let that group go. He was sitting on the back of the, all of them. And they all knew that they, as they descended towards town, they had a real problem. It reminded me a bit, David, of that stage of the tour a few years ago where Magnus Court came into Carcassonne with Bauke Mollema and Gorka Izagiri uh, and someone else. Yeah. I can't remember. Do you remember? Just in the knowledge that Got he was this. just going to win the stage. Just going to crush it. Yeah. Just choose how he's going to win. It was a bit like that. Um, so it was, it was a masterstroke. <clears throat> I'd been up to that. Sorry, I've got a bit of a thought on my phone. I'm going to have a loud cough. Bear with me. <coughs> Prior to that point, um, I'd been a bit kind of baffled by the fact that um, Vandrame seemed to be not communicating with Bouchard at all, his teammate, who was in the jersey and collecting mountains points, and not helping Bouchard particularly. Mm, so, yeah. And every time Bouchard, every time Bouchard got kind of dropped a little bit, I kept expecting Vandrame to drop back and pace him back up to the front of the race because he's Bouchard's the much better climber. Huh. But all along. 
He was hatching this plan. He's riding his own race. Oh, well, that definitely does indicate that he knew very well the finish. I mean, it was really, that's, yeah. that's incredible. It's so ready you see that. I mean, well, hats off to him, as you say, because that's no mean feat. And also having, having the confidence not to help your teammate is, yeah. is that as well is a, uh, that's cool, you know? It was quite yeah. cool, actually. And, and yeah. when Bouchard was interviewed at the end, um, he was asked about uh, Vendrami's victory. And he said, and he was clearly delighted for him. And he said, he's my, he's my roommate. Oh, no way. So, yeah. Huh. So, uh, and it looked, like, it looked like they couldn't stand each other because they just weren't communicating, you know, ah, at all in the, in the group. But actually, clever. they'd hatched a plan all along. Very clever. Uh, but there was a little bit of controversy because um, Bennett and Brambilla got, uh, or Brambilla got, relegated didn't he well it was in the final it was in the final kilometer and uh brambilla did the old so group of four final kilometer vendrame is now kind of on the front because he realizes just keep the pace high keep the pace high and sprint from the front and i can still win it right yeah um brambilla did the old drop two three bike lengths back readying himself for a long range attack which was let's face it his only chance bennett saw him do it bennett was kind of third wheel saw him do it and took him out the back, David. Hmm. And this, and from that moment on, and it happened in a split second, that's it. Neither Bennett or Brambilla are going to win. Huh. It was that fast. And it, but I think it's such a funny thing. I mean, it's actually quite comic, isn't it? Two riders just kind of like a mutual suicide pact, isn't it? It's a really weird, because I um, remember when I was younger coming through the ranks, and it's, it's something you see so rarely these days, the kind of the taking a rider out the back. And it would happen... Um, in breakaways when you didn't have, uh, when you had a rider sitting on inexplicably. Actually, it happened more often than not in the old days when there weren't radios. So, cause you, people these days, if they're not riding, can blame their radio and blame the director sportif and team orders, et cetera, basically lie sometimes. But in the old <laughs> days, it was, it was pretty much not a done thing to not ride and you'd have to have a very strong personality or or very obvious reasons like you're you're in the team that had the leader's jersey or that the sprinter that was destined to win the stage etc but if that wasn't the case you'd end up have a lot of riders bickering in breakaways and it could get to the point where you'd get to uh ride one rider who gets so incredibly sees red that they start arguing with this guy uh, verbally who's sitting on the back and they start dropping out the back and they kind of, ref- both of them look at each other refusing to help the other get back on. And it turns into, as you said, it's a bit of a suicide pact. And I mean, I've, I've been in situations like that where I think I've only done it once or twice in my career where I tried to take somebody out the back. But to take somebody out the back, you have to be so strong because, and committed. And it is a bit of a, a silly move because you're going to burn a lot of matches to do it. So if they're sitting on the back, you go in front of them and you just slowly, slowly let the wheel go in front of you. And before you know it, there's like 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 meters. And you just start looking around then waiting to see, look, if you're, if you, if they've been claiming I'm too tired to ride, which often is what they'll end up pulling. I can't ride. I'm too weak. I'm too tired. You take them so far at the back and go, well, if you're too tired, let's see how tired you are. And then you just kind of, you sort of go next to them, drop a little bit further. And then you just do a huge, like monstrously violent attack to bridge the gap back up. And if then they pop onto your wheel or they come back on, you say, you got to ride. You're not tired. And it's a kind of, it's a bit of a crazy move, but it's, it's you only do it. It's, it's very irrational. 
and it's generally an emotional move but uh you don't see it so much these days you see it quite a lot and it was pretty funny actually because it's it's just fighting without without actually (laughs) punching each other and it's just so childish (laughs) (laughs) who who did you who did you take out the back do you remember give me names i can't remember i mean it must have been like late 90s i just can't remember i mean it would have been somebody i probably didn't really know um because it has to be somebody you're not very respectful of or just don't know because (laughs) (laughs) you're just you're looking down upon uh but i was pretty young so i don't know who it could have been but yeah, and it's, yeah. and but it is it it is the funniest thing when you see some when two riders doing it because it's so unproductive and you generally know yeah. the person's just lying anyway. So what's the point in proving it? It's um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like oh uh, uh, yeah. So yeah, so, so it's, I'm quite amused that Bennett ended up doing that. It's, it's funny. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, in a, in an instant, they were just relegated to squabbling for third and fourth place. <laughs> Which, which they did. Uh, and even then they managed to fall out over the line because in this kind of sprinter's sprint, two up sprint for third place, Brambilla just cut across Bennett and there was a bit of like arm wavy stuff that went on. That's great. Between the pair of them. No, that was quite amusing. Quite enjoyed that. Yeah, it was fun. What about was fun. Um, the, so I'm quite interested about Nibali and what he was doing. So that's kind of the, the opposite to those yeah. sort of uh, low status slide outs the back. That's. Like yeah, high status forward sliding. Forward, he was forward he was sliding. Forward high sliding. status forward sliding. That's what he was doing. Wow. So in the GC race that you said that you know you've already outlined didn't happen today. Um, it, it, the only attack came from first Giulio Ciccone, mm. Giulio Ciccone of Trek Segafredo, who um on the yeah on that final climb at precisely the same point. I was just you know when Vendr- ten minutes later, obviously when the bunch got there, um he attacked and he got a little lead. And what was really cool about it this time, though, I mean, it was just a Ciccone attack, wasn't it? He got five seconds lead, and then Martinez got to the front and sort of tried to claw him back. Um, but what was really cool was that Vincenzo Nibali countered from mm. the bunch, got straight across to Ciccone, and then rode, rode for him. So, the the you know, Nibali's full... Yeah, it was really impressive, actually, and kind of quite cool to watch. Mm. Um it, ultimately, Martinez dragged them all back and Ciccone got caught. But that wasn't, Nibali wasn't done for the day. And over the top and on this really quite um, technical descent down into town, uh, he got on the front again and he just started hammering it down. Slightly wet roads as well. And Nibali, it's like really, it was kind of retro Nibali. It was yeah. like, oh yeah. That's what he used he to was do. serious. You know, that's yeah. what he used to do. And you're thinking, two things, you're thinking, he doesn't really need to be doing this. There's no great gain he can make. It's four and a half minutes down. I mean, but he's, rem- but he did need to be doing it because one, he was reminding everybody that his, of his, of his very presence in the race. And two, he forced Ineos into the, the only mistake they made. Well, arguably the only mistake, and it's only a minor mistake, kind of the only mistake they've made so far really. And it was in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't a big one, but Moscon, who let's face it, we know is a little bit of a hothead from time to time. Mm. Um, obviously saw Nibali as a, as a red rag to a bull and went after <laughs> oh, him no. on the descent, which is, which is something that you, you didn't need to do. Nah. You could just let Nibali go, give, give him 30 seconds. Just be cool. Just, you know, yeah. you're just piloting Bernal to the finish line here, aren't you? No, Nibali got all, I'm sorry, Moscon got all feisty got all alpha got all chimpy about it went after him and of course screwed it up and went down hard on a on a, a on a um right hand turn oh, um so what? just front wheel slip what front wheel slipped out boom bang onto the tarmac oh no and i don't think he's I think he's badly injured but he's probably waking up in a hotel room somewhere 
a little bit sore today and feeling a little bit. Oh, and it could have been a lot worse. He could could have been out of the jira. That's super status from New Belly then. Like the kind I of think it the, is. The I old, think it's kind of older cool. Italian just was renowned as before descending got cool. You know, in the old de- days when the Schlecks were complaining about descents, and and so he was kind of recognised being the best in the world. And then you got the young Mosk on. He'll be thinking, "I'll shut him down." The old guy who thinks he's good in descents, slap bam, yeah. brilliant, love it. <laughs> <laughs> that's proper <laughs> but talking yeah, so, so there's no yeah. so but there's no mountains today right it's quite flat day today. oh no no flat doesn't even come close david doesn't come close oh, really? we're in the po river valley which is endlessly wide the further you get you know uh, across to the we're in veneto so it's, it's, the further you get across to towards venice as i'm sure you know and the adriatic coast right up in the northwest of italy i can see in the distance i can see the alps suddenly like the Pyrenees do in the southwest of France just rising up mm. out of this flat plain um really impressive actually but uh, we don't go near them today I'm at the finish line obviously and it's just I mean it's the flattest parkour in world racing and I include the UAE tour in that I mean it's just seriously it's just incredible it's incredibly flat and I was th- got me thinking about flat parts of Europe and trying to I was that bored on the transfer yesterday I was trying to sort of tick <laughs> mentally tick them off all the really flat parts of Europe and and I thought well in the UK you've got what you got you got Norfolk the Norfolk, oh, Norfolk Broads, is very flat isn't it? I've never been there you got you've never been to Norfolk I don't think so no have you been to Devon yes have you been to have you ever been to Wales I, 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 did I win the tour, Junior Tour of Wales? I think I might know. have won the junior, junior Tour of Wales. I could, we could play this game for a while, just randomly naming parts yeah. of the United I have United been Wales. I have been, been Cornwall, um, Yorkshire. Um, <laughs> You've definitely been to Yorkshire. I've um, seen you in Yorkshire. Oh yeah, yeah, you have. I've been to quite a lot of places, <laughs> Ned. But you've never been to Norfolk? Never been to Norfolk. I've had no reason to go to Norfolk. Why would I go to Norfolk? Oh. No, but that's not bad. I'm not criticising Norfolk, but... Genuinely, I've had what? no reason to go to Norfolk. There's no bike races there. There's no, I don't have any um, friends there. Um, and maybe <laughs> well, I do. You don't now. Or maybe I do. Yeah, I just, um, just never met them. Do you know what a cool thing that I vaguely remember? Have you ever read any Graham Swift? Water, have you I, read I, Waterland? Yeah, I love Graham Swift. Swift. I read those books when I was younger. Yeah. I, Waterland. Is it Waterland? About uh, set in the Norfolk Roads. I don't. That tale of kind of. That, Graham that, Swift. Uh, that tale of that, Waterland, right here. There you go. What's the? Oh, it's a beautiful book. What's the synopsis of that? The synopsis. A, the family growing up in a lock keeper's house or something by the side of a canal. Yeah, it's not. Is that? It's not got a um, synopsis on it. It's just got oh, quotes. Is it not? But on the back it says, uh, "Positively Faulknerian in its concentration on murder, incest, guilt, and insanity. The brooding sense of really place is a shaping force in the novel's action is as powerful as Hardy's Wessex or Dickens's London." It's yeah. set in the Fens. Mm. The, no, the Norfolk Broads, the Fens. I don't know quite. I don't know the difference. But anyway, super flat part of the world, and um, and I think I I think it's a long time since I read that book, but I seem to remember a detail from that book that has stuck with me. That um, I think it's from that book. The the reason that they know, you know, like when you sometimes see animations, David, m- maps of um how, uh. Africa and South America, which used to be one landmass, slowly drifted apart and the Atlantic Ocean was formed. Yes. 
you know, over over millennia, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, also, equally, the British Isles separated from mainland Europe, didn't they? Kind of drifted out into the Atlantic and formed the North Sea. And if you kind of tilt, you tilt the British Isles back onto the Dutch coast and the Danish coast, it kind of fits. Yeah. Yeah. And one one of the bits of evidence that scientists had, I think I'm right in saying, for knowing that that happened in history, that it was one landmass, hmm. is is the River Ouse, which flows through, I think, flows out in Kings Lynn or something, flows through Norfolk, oh. um, around, through East Anglia, used to be, uh, they've proven, a tributary to the River Rhine. Seriously? That's Yeah, mad. and the reason they know that is because a very specific species of eel, uh, which uh, eels are some of the oldest animals on the planet, aren't they? Yeah, and, like crocodiles uh, and stuff. And so... Yeah, and these and these eels are only found in the River Ouse and in certain other tributaries of the Rhine. So they used to be used to be the same sort of family, you know, when it was all one landmass. How cool good. is that? That's very really cool. Also, I just remembered I've watched. So remember the Finley Pretzel film they did of me, Time Trial. So the director of, director of photography in that Martin Radich um, wrote and directed a film called Norfolk, which I actually saw at the cinema. It's very good, and what's that's it, Nor- what's it about. Uh, it's about. Uh, it's about Norfolk. It's um, <laughs> no, it's very set in Norfolk. Um, here we go. Set in Norfolk amidst an idyllic, brooding landscape, an innocent teenage boy and his battle-weary father live a simple life. Days are spent hunting, fishing, and daydreaming. Out of nowhere, disrupting this tranquility, a mysterious, intense figure gives the green light for the father to complete one last mission. He is a mercenary, hired to assassinate a group of revolutionaries holed up in a remote, disused civil what? service outpost. outpost. What? A mission that's, that threatens that's to destroy... A, that's not a bit of a plot twist, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's really good. And it's um, it's super... gets Actually, twists is right. It gets super twisted. And, but it's very Norfolkian. Norfolkian. <laughs> it is not... Norfolkian. Norfolkian. Excuse the language. That wasn't, yeah, can, that wasn't a, actually meant to happen. Um, yeah. Norfolkian. Would that be a word? Norfolkian? Norfolkish, Norfolkish, yeah, Norfolk-ish. it's very marshy and flat. So yeah. there you go. I'll, I'll yeah. put it in the show notes. Um, and of course, Alan Partridge, isn't it? North Norfolk Digital well, and all that. Yeah, he's the best. He's the best. He's the best. Um, um, so there. So yeah, right. yeah. That's. Uh, I don't like. I quite like flat countryside, and I don't really like mountains. I, you know what? I'm with you on that one. But I, I thought my mountains thing was. We we often have this discussion when we're in the mountains. And I know that you've got a real borderline phobia for mountains. Does that exist? Yeah. I think it does. I just find them, I mean, I admire, I respect mountains and I admire them, but I can't say I warm to them greatly because it's just a whole faff of, I'm just going to pop down the shops. Hmm. 25 minutes later and, uh, uh, you know, you're still weaving down hairpins so, and you're yeah. in the back of a car and you're feeling sick. So I, I've got a little bit of the same thing. See, I think mine was more tied to this fact that I'd never really visited mountains until I became a, a bike racer. So mm. I've got, I've got borderline PTSD uh, in the sense that mountains represent suffering and pain for me. And also, as you know, often, when you're doing them, you're staying in horrible places that aren't designed really for summer. And so they're just empty and they've just got, they feel like an empty film set that's just been run down. 
and yeah. just the whole experience the snow, is miserable. When the snow melts, they need the snow to cover up all their faults, don't exactly. they? Exactly. Yeah, it's like when a, the snow it, melts away, it's all gravel and crap. It's and like a sort of bad, bad architecture. It's like, and, it's like a really cool pub or nightclub. It's like it, night after a few drinks, it's amazing. But if you were to go there the next morning with daylight and the cleaners, you'd be like, oh my god. And that's what it's the mountains just, are almost like. Empty, empty cigarette packets and kebab wrappers and yeah, that's yeah. So that's so yeah. But I think actually, but then I went skiing properly for the first time last year or the year before with a family in Switzerland, and being there in the kind of in that was the Don de Midi, and I was like properly beautiful, like stunning yeah. winter, just all snow and everything. I was like, oh, I get it. This is pretty amazing. Yeah. But otherwise, no, I couldn't take them or leave them. To be honest, I'd, I'd rather be by the sea. Yeah, I like the sea. Yeah. It kind of gives you a sense of. I and I think I've had this discussion before as well, Ned. With the sea, you feel like you could go anywhere. In the mountains, it's quite claustrophobic, and it's like it's correct. It's like it's a bit like that film Alive. You know where they where the plane crashes in the Andes yeah. mountains. They eat each other. And they eat, and they each, eat other. each other. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Well, well, exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, you, me, and Pete Kenyuk were. Last time we toured on the you know on the road, we yeah. were almost at that point, weren't we? we were, until we got to teen. And then we're okay. Yeah. We discovered yeah. team. I had, when I lived and worked in Germany, I, I was, I was based in North Germany and um, there's a comparable, well, for, for the exact reasons I just outlined about the land masses being linked. You know, if you, if you flop the fens onto Europe, you end up in um, uh, the North of the North of Germany, essentially. So there's a whole, you know, around uh, North of Hanover, South of Hamburg and into Schleswig-Holstein towards the Danish border and into obviously Northern, the Netherlands, pan flat. Absolutely pan flat. And what's quite interesting is I used to work, I worked for, briefly for a touring theatre company. I was acting. <laughs> 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 not having a day in, <laughs> not in powdered wigs or anything. Um, but I did a couple of years sort of touring around North Germany doing, doing plays. Um, and our director, a guy called Harold, um, was from Dannenberg, which is close to the East German border, actually. And he was an old school North German socialist right he wore a beret and smoked a pipe awesome and drank and drank little stubby bottles of beer uh, throughout the day actually starting at breakfast <laughs> <laughs> now i now i remember it and driving it and driving a battered mercedes around town but he was a he was a proper old school um yeah i mean germany has this kind of west germany's was and he was very much a west german has this tradition of kind of you know left-wing radicals and how yeah. was it was but he was he was, um, he was absolutely, f I mean, he never left that part of um, the world really. And he got absolutely, he was genuinely phobic about mountains. Hmm. But in, in his mind, in his, see, G Germany is kind of quite, uh, quite hilly in the centre. It gets a bit hilly towards the it's, French it's, border it's into the Vosges mountains. Got skiing mountains and stuff. Well, and then right down in the south in Bavaria, um, they have the Alps, mm. right? They have the, you know, they share in the, in Austria, German Alps. And, um, and, but there, in his mind, it was all bound up with politics as well, because, um, let's not forget that it was in Munich, in Bavaria, you know, that, that was the, that was the beer hall putsch. And that's where, uh, Hitler decided to come to for, after he left Vienna to orchestrate the kind of national socialist revolution and everything. So, and, and all the, uh, kind of tradition of left-wing, uh, of socialism in Germany is kind of rooted in the North, the flat North, um, rather than the Catholic and mountainous South, so there's that as well. Very good. Yeah, I think it's different, more difficult perhaps to be a Nazi 
in a very flat country. That's, I haven't thought that one through really. I haven't got I, any. No, that's it's, it's, a, just, it's a good point. It's a floating theory. Well, when you when you think how much the Nazis celebrated the mountains by building the eagle's nest as a gift to Adolf Hitler, yeah, that implies they really like the mountains. Yeah. I- <laughs> I think that's but, true. I think that's true. But you never know. Um, um, do you want to do um, the two gentlemen of Verona? Well, I've actually found like a, a, quite a, a yeah, much briefer summary. Um, well, it starts with two friends, doesn't it? From Verona, they're the two gentlemen of Verona, bos- aren't they? Bosom buddies, Valentine what and Proteus. Yeah, and and pr- and they want to go to Milan. No, Valentine wants to go to Milan to go and see the world, doesn't he? And Proteus. Uh, wants to go with him, but he's in love with Julia, but he doesn't know he's in love with Julia. And then Julia's tricked into knowing that he's in love with Pro. She's in love. He's in love with her. And then they're in love with each other. But Proteus goes to Milan with Valentine anyway. Right. Mm. And as soon as Proteus gets to Milan, where Valentine meets a, a, a Sylvia and falls in love with Sylvia, Proteus, who's in love with Julia, gets to Milan and falls in love with Sylvia instantly forgets about Julia. Right. So they've both gone from from loving Julia and then... No, I, well, I don't know. I don't think Valentine initially loved Julia, but then Proteus didn't either. But then he did. But then he goes to Milan and d- ditches Julia and falls in love with Sylvia. Now they're both... Now it's awkward because they're both in love with Sylvia and they're both in Milan. Well, it's not very loyal to Julia, is it? But anyway... But Julia, mean, and J- Julia in the meantime gets wind of the fact that... I think gets wind of the fact that he's in now in love with Sylvia. Or doesn't... Know, I don't know. But she goes after him anyway, dressed for some reason as a fella. Yeah, as a chap. that's probably easy because it was a Shakespeare play and they weren't allowed to have girls. So instead of probably just making it, um, you know, because it was all boys on stage, wasn't it? Girls weren't allowed to act back then. Exactly. So much but then that's so meta, isn't it? That's so, so meta, yeah. Twelfth Night is the same, isn't it? Where a female character dresses as a male. So you got, yeah, you got a boy dressing as, a boy pretending to be a girl dressing as a boy. Yeah, just to, just to ease the actual, the, the stress put on the, the acting troupe. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so Julia's now turned into a uh, a girl, boy. No. <laughs> Julia's now a boy, gone after um, Proteus and Valentine yep. in Milan. She's left Verona. Yeah. Now, at this point, so the reason Proteus was going there, no, Valentine was going there, was to improve himself yeah. and uh, it was in the court of the Duke of Milan. Yeah. Yeah? As you do. Yeah. So they quite now, possibly, yeah. So then yeah. we get to when Proteus arrives at court, because he's gone there as well, Valentine has fallen off yeah. the Duke's Oh yeah, so Sylvia's the daughter of the Duke, missed out that key fact. Yeah. And the Duke has betrothed Sylvia to somebody who uh, nobody likes because he's just ridiculous, called Furio. He's wealthy but foppish, and she doesn't want to marry him anyway. And now mm. she's got these two blokes, these two gentlemen for Verona who are in love with her. But then Valentine gets banished by the Duke. And Proteus basically snakes on him because Proteus wants his mate out of the way because he wants Sylvia, <sighs> right? So love's just so ruining their, their their male bosom buddy he friendship. Takes, he takes him out the back. I'd say it's actually, say it's actually probably <laughs> more infatuation than love considering how briefly they've known Sylvia and the fact she's the daughter of the Duke. So it's more. Yeah. So I think Julia's getting yeah. a bit kind of flicked yeah here. so yeah anyway carry on yeah but well proteus takes valentine out the back basically yeah and <clears throat> valentine then is um he just runs around with a bunch of outlaws who, cl- who, cl- who cl- de- 
declare him to be their leader. And it all gets a bit, a bit weird there. But then there's always the, there is always in those Shakespeare plays, the exile world, isn't there? There's the forest, mm. there's the outside of the city, there's the kind of dark, you know. It's the uh, um, bad boy scene. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, Julia then arriving in Milan, um, finds out that Proteus, uh, who sh- she thought was in love with him, is actually in love with Sylvia. And she gets a job as um, Proteus's page boy and calls herself sebastian see this just gets better it's just definitely they were just short of boys who look like girls in that acting troupe and shakespeare just thought look i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to just change this to fit the guys we got available to us here yeah you know know, sebastian Uh, a page boy yeah yeah this is where it starts getting really complicated because i mean even you can't do it i've got two paragraphs here that might help and just sort of picking up a bit and then it's, it's shorter. Yeah. The banished Valentine, yeah. while traveling to Mantua, is apprehended by a group of outlaws. This, this is where you just were. The outlaws, yeah. all of whom are banished gentlemen as well, demand Valentine, them. De- demand Valentine to become so, their king. Since they yeah. threaten to kill him if he refuses, Valentine accepts. Fair enough. Yeah. Sylvia yeah. and Julia, who is disguised as the page Sebastian now, meet when Julia delivers the ring Proteus had given her to Sylvia on behalf of Proteus. Yes. Julia does not reveal yeah. her identity because she's Sebastian, yeah. the page boy. Sylvia calls yeah. on her friend, Sir Eglamore, to help her escape her father's oppressive will. He oh. wants her to marry Thurio. And mm. she, she goes off looking for Valentine with the help of Sir Eglamore. However, while traveling through the forest, she and Eglamore are overtaken by a band of outlaws. <gasps> Egl- <laughs> Egl- Valentine's going to be one. Yeah. Eglamore runs away. Leaving Sylvia to fend for herself against the outlaws. Well, he's not a very good chap, is he? By this time, the Duke, Proteus, and Thurio, with Sebastian, also known as Julia, in tow, have organised a search party for Sylvia. Don't worry, we're pretty near the end there. Uh, Proteus wrests Sylvia away from the outlaws. (laughs) Valentine watches the interaction unseen. Proteus demands that Sylvia give him some sign of her favour for freeing her, but she refuses. Uh He tries to rape her for her resistance. I know, this is... Valentine jumps out and stops him. Proteus immediately apologises, sorry, and Valentine offers to give him Sylvia as a token of their friendship. At this moment, Sebastian faints, and his true identity becomes clear. Proteus decides... Yeah, his wig falls off or something. Uh, Proteus decides that he really loves Julia better than Sylvia, and takes her instead. The Duke realises that Thurio is a thug, and says that Valentine is far nobler, nobler and can marry Sylvia. Okay, Valentine so asks for clemency for the outlaws and suggests that his marriage to Sylvia and Proteus' marriage to Julia should take place on the same day. Now, so it all works out in the end. Um, now, David, do you think that Shakespeare... This is one of Shakespeare's earlier works, isn't it? This is clearly one of his earlier works because my when you read that and it's, it's, it's not... Uh, a very clear or clean thread. You can see how eventually, because that was based in Verona, and there's probably yep. th- he thought, what about if I just do Romeo and Juliet? That's just yeah, going to be, be much better. simpler, you know. And you know, you can make a musical about Romeo and Juliet, can't you? You can th- die straights can yeah. do a song. So, but there are two. There are two best friends at the beginning of that. There's some sort of the thuggish family. There's this and that. There's sort of elements to it. And yeah. and but the 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 con the dif- difference instead of going for that double header happy ending yeah he goes for just double death at the end of romeo and juliet sorry spoiler 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? I really love, I love going to the theatre and I love seeing Shakespeare, actually. I've seen, as I say, I've seen two gentlemen run, but I do have to confess that I spend the first half an hour of, if I go to the theatre to see Shakespeare, kind of tuning into the language. It's so hard, isn't it? It's super hard. And you sit there, go, you're frowning with concentration. Go, I'm missing so much. I'm missing so much. And then if you just chill, if you just relax, kick back a bit, let it wash over you, you kind of, you get it anyway, somehow. Oh, I, but, got um, a, yeah. I got a, a great book. Oh, 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 I'll bring it tomorrow about okay. the language of rhetoric and the eloquence because it's, it's pretty, right. it's, it's pretty clever. The kind of just the rules that are, that are used. But as you said, you need to tune into them. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that All was right. our little bit of, uh, Shakespeare criticism. Who do you think is going to? Who do you think is going to win in Verona? Which of the two or three Verona. gentlemen are going to make? Yeah, in Fair Verona, where we lay our scene. Who? Which gentleman is going to come out of the forest and claim the prize <laughs> in Verona? Uh, oh, that didn't work. What about yeah, Grunewagen. Yeah, I don't. Mm. Hey, yeah. by the way, we haven't mentioned either, just to, just to quickly just, just finish off today. There are some pretty significant and surprising um, DNFs yesterday. Gino Maida, oh, DeMarkey, oh, sh- Dowser. No, literally should. That's, and it was, it was really attritional. Yeah. Yeah. And your man. It was DeMarkey that was the, the headline act, really. Mm. Poor old boy. I mean, nobody saw him fall. Well, sorry, the cameras didn't see him fall, but we saw the aftermath and he was lying by the side of the road and already the medics were there putting him on a stretcher and a neck brace. It looked pretty bad, actually, and it was bad. Yeah, he's broken collarbone, Aww. broken ribs, broken, fractured a couple of vertebrae, but but mercifully, he's got no head injuries. I think he's overnight, precautionary overnight stay in hospital, but um, yeah, back of an ambulance and off, mm. off the race. Dowsett didn't finish and Fausto Masnada didn't finish and Gino Meda, who I think must have fallen on the uh, gravel stage the day before because he started the race with a um, heavily bandaged left arm um, was clearly struggling all day. So yeah, Israel startup nation have lost three of their riders now. And uh, that's, that's uh, also, yeah, that's tough. Also just I'm surprised you haven't jumped on this one because it's, it's Mark Soler. And Mark, and Mark Soler, sorry. Yes. Well, he got caught up in a crash um, at the back. Well, at the back of the bunch that looked pretty innocuous and you just couldn't, it was a touch of the wheels. Barry McLaren rider went down in front of him. He got caught up, hit the deck, got up, looked fine. Really? He got a, Albert Torres sent back to uh, kind of pace that, him back. That was he, a stay down crash, wasn't it? That was like, mean? if you're having a really bad race and it's all going to, to crap and you have a crash, it's like, just stay down. Stay down, stay, stay down. down, stay down. This is it. This no is eye it. Contact. This is, this is your exit. Get out of here. Yeah. He's, he's yeah, sure. so yeah. He kind of, he realized in classic sort of, he really realized the stay down too late and got back up and then went down and then did the stay down. But yeah. 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 Oh, well, yeah. All right. Very good. Okay. Um, so that was that, David. And, um, tomorrow morning, very early in the morning, I will speak to you on this podcast. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. 
Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 